Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NosillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 27th, 2021, and this is show number 842. Well, this week I've got just three segments and all three are fun and meaty. I did want to tell you that my most recent video tutorial is up on Screencast Online, and I think it's a really swell one. I called it 14 Tips in iOS 14. I think it's swell because it's very fast-paced, because no topic is more than three minutes long. You can't possibly get bored. Even if you're a master of iOS, I bet you'll find at least a few of these that you didn't know about before you watched. You can find this awesome tutorial, awesome if I do say so myself, over at ScreencastOnline.com. Remember, there's a free seven-day trial of the Screencast Online tutorial service, during which you can watch the current back catalog. You'll get hooked because there's so many great tutors there from whom you can learn. So go check it out. I think this is one of my best. On this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond, it's back with Bart Bouchat's On Programming by Stealth, installment 119 of X, and we're going to be talking about open source on GitHub. As promised, Bart takes us through the final step in our GitHub journey, learning how to contribute to an open source project. He explains three open source scenarios. The first is using someone else's code exactly as is. Then he talks about using their code with a few customization of your own. And finally, he goes through the most interesting scenario, customizing the code and contributing your customizations back to the project. When he gets to this final scenario, he gives us a way to practice these newly acquired skills, and it's something he's wanted to do for a long time. He's created a gallery for all Programming by Stealth listeners to contribute their work that they've done in the various challenges we've worked in Programming by Stealth. If you have code from the challenges for Conway's Game of Life, the number guessing game we wrote, the currency converter, the currency grid, the world clock, or the timesharing clock, we'd love to have you contribute to the PBS gallery to show off your work. Bart explains that the GitHub pages he's created will allow us to fork his code, make our own changes, and then create what's called a pull request to get them accepted into the official PBS gallery. You can find that at gallery.pbs.bartificer.net. I worked through the whole process for one of my projects, and it was definitely a learning experience to actually do this to contribute your code, and that, of course, is the whole point of programming by stealth. And if you haven't learned how to do GitHub pages yet, this is a chance to practice that. And you, So for this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond, of course, we have Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes over at pbs.bartificer.net. And of course, you can find this episode along with all the rest in your programming, I'm sorry, in your podcatcher of choice, just by looking for Programming by Stealth. One of the most controversial things shown at Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, otherwise known as WWDC, was redesign of Safari. Apple didn't do a, I didn't think they did a really good job of explaining what problem they were trying to solve, but the interface is going to be very different from any browser we've ever used. The redesign is across all of their platforms, macOS, iOS, and iPadOS. Right now, to play with the new hotness, you have to install the developer betas of the operating system. Not only does that cost money, but it's also a very dicey thing to do with devices you depend on. Soon there will be a public beta of the operating system, so it won't cost any money, but unless you enjoy living life on the wild side, it's still not a great idea to install a beta operating system on your primary devices, even if it's a public beta. If you do have spare devices, man, all bets are off. Have a great time with the betas. But what if you don't want to take that risk, but you still want to play with Safari to decide whether you're going to hate it or maybe even like it? 
I've never seen them do this before, but Apple has made available the Safari Technology Preview, which you can download and run on macOS Big Sur. The cool thing is that it's a standalone app separate from the currently released version of Safari, and it even has a purple logo so you can tell them apart. You can run both the Safari Technology Preview and regular Safari side by side with no danger of borking anything else on your Mac. Safari Technology Preview doesn't appear to be available for iOS or iPadOS, but at least we can mess around with it on the fully released macOS Big Sur. The most dramatic change to Safari is that tabs are very different now. Instead of being a row of obvious tabs below the URL bar, it's sort of like they merged the tabs in the URL bar into one thing. For example, if you have podfeed.com and amazon.com open in tabs, whichever one you've selected will show the URL field with a little lock and such, and the other tab will just be a button with part of the name showing. Now, the louder people online are complaining that they can't read the name of the tabs because they get cut off, but it doesn't look like it's that much different than the current Safari. As you add more and more tabs currently, the names get cut off too. Eventually, in both versions, the tab names disappear, and it's just the favicons, those tiny little icons web developers add to their websites. I honestly don't see why people are up in arms about it. The only thing I did notice is that with a tab selected, you still only see the shortened URL, not the full one, and yet the URL field is huge. So all of the other tabs get pretty narrow, and if they were wider, you'd be able to read the description, but the URL field is taking up all of the space with very little information in it. Now, once you get enough tabs open, that's not why the, the names are getting cut off. And most people who complain about this have a lot of tabs open. So I don't think it's a big effect of it, but it is kind of weird that they dedicate all this extra space, but they still only show you the little shortened URL. Now, when you flip between tabs, it's a pretty jarring experience because the entire upper part of the browser window will change color and sometimes quite dramatically. For example, many web pages are a basic white background, but when I switch to my Weather Underground tab, the Favorites bar and the new integrated tab URL bar all turn bright blue. Just basically the whole top of it was this flaming blue. Now this is very odd because this color doesn't show anywhere on the current Safari rendering of this website. I can see this dramatic change between tabs leaving people feeling a bit disoriented. So I'm not quite sure where that blue came from. It's, it's, it's very odd. But as, so as you flip between these tabs, you might be kind of disoriented, like I said. Now, they've added the concept of tab groups to the new Safari. When I first looked at tab groups, I thought it was just like having a folder in the favorites bar. But it's not really the same thing at all. It is similar to the Safari general preference to open new windows with a folder from your favorites bar, if you've, if you've ever done that. When you do that, every new window has all of those tabs already open. With tab groups, though, we now have multiple sets instead of that just one that you click it and you get them all open at once. Now, since the redesign is all about maximizing the web page real estate, tab groups are created and accessed in the left sidebar. I tested out tab groups and I think it's kind of slick. I thought about how often I open different web pages within podfeet.com while I'm working. Like I've got the blog, blog post category, each of the podcast pages, and WordPress to manage podfeet.com, and I thought that might make a nice tab group. I opened all of the separate web pages on separate tabs that I normally open by diving in and out of the homepage. I used the icon in the toolbar to show the left side panel, and it said at the top, you have five tabs open. 
From there, I could tap the icon with a double rectangle and a plus button to create a tab group. You can also do it by right-clicking on the number of tabs. Now that sounds much more tedious than it was to execute, especially if you already have the tabs open that you want to group. Now that I have a PodFeet tab group, I can click on it and my browser window changes to show all of the tabs open at once. In my opinion, it's kind of like the best of both worlds. You have access to all your lovely favorite sites and tabs, but if you click away, you have just the new tabs you may have opened. I think this would work better for me than a never-ending edition of tabs open in my browser. Now, if it's hard to tell which site is which because your tab group has a ton of tabs in it, if you click on the tab group name, you see a grid of four squares and a, and a little grid as an icon. When you tap on that grid icon, the main part of the page will change to being big thumbnails of each website, and you'll be able to read the site names on each one. And that might be a faster or more visual way to jump to the tab in your tab group you want. Now, I wish you didn't have to first select the tab group in order to be able to tap its grid icon, and I sent that feedback to Apple using the Feedback Assistant app. I thought maybe tab groups would eliminate the need to use the favorites bar, so I tried to convert mine into a tab group. I was surprised to find there was no way to do that. I had to open bookmarks from the left sidebar, which slides away the tab groups, then right-click each favorite to open it in a tab. Then when I had them all open, I was able to flip back to tab groups, and then I was able to make one called favorites out of what I had open. I guess I only needed to do that once, so it's not that big of a deal. It was kind of an annoying process. After using tab groups for a bit, I don't think it would eliminate the desirability of having a favorites bar. One-click access to the few things I use all the time can't be beat by opening a tab group that includes the one thing I need. Apple talked in the WWDC keynote about the need we all have to focus, and they're creating different contexts for that concept with more notification controls. I think you could use tab groups as a way to increase focus. When you're in your waste-away time on social media mode, you could select your tab group with Reddit and Facebook and Twitter. When it's time to focus on getting some work done, maybe you have a tab group for serious things like Google Docs and Sheets. With the click of a button, you can completely switch context and have open what you need without a ton of windows open or a ton of tabs open in one window. Ooh, that might actually be a bad thing because right in the middle of working, you can hit your play tab group and goof around. Well, you know what? That's on you if you do that. Now, I'm not sure what happened, but over the last year or two, Apple has started this new concept of making you hover or click to discover things. The worst example of how they're doing this is with reminders. I absolutely hate with a passion how on macOS Big Sur, I have to hover on a reminder and then a downward chevron will appear. And only if I click on that, can I complete the task. I'm talking about notifications. There used to be a button right on the notification and now it's three actions to click on it. I'm not sure how hiding things we need to use all the darn time is a good thing. If you get a notification and you've already done the task or you do the task, why make it harder to acknowledge that? Well, in the Safari technology preview, since they eliminated the toolbar, there's no area to put the refresh button and the share icon. Instead, you have to click into the URL field on a three-dot icon to reveal the refresh and share menu. Now, Command-R command still works to refresh, thank goodness, but it seems so dumb to have to click twice to get to a button that a lot of people find pretty necessary. If you want a refresh button back, John Syracuse has written a Safari extension to give you back the refresh button, and it will run in the, in the Safari technology preview. 
in order to install an extension on Safari Technology Preview, you need to install it on the original Safari, and then it'll show up. All of the extensions that you have installed on the original Safari will show up in the Technology Preview so that you can turn them on. Now, you also don't have a visible X to close tabs, but in this case, this one's not a problem. If you want to close a tab, you're going to have to move your cursor to the tab, right? Well, the instant you do that, if the name is showing, you'll, you're, the favicon will change to an X for easy closing. I tested what happens if there are so many tabs open that only the favicon is opening, and I discovered something delightful. When you hover over the favicon, a little mini browser thumbnail pops open so you can very easily tell which web page it represents. When the tabs do have names, you get the same effect on Hover too. It's really, really slick. So all this whining about not being able to read the names, just hang there for a second and you'll get these beautiful thumbnails. Now I know this is a preview version of the new Safari browser for macOS Monterey, so I can't give a bottom line about whether it's any good or not. But I was convinced before I got to play with it that I would hate it. But I have to say, it's fresh and new looking and I rather like it. Last week, in part one of my screencasting tips article, I explained to you how to get set up for a successful screen recording session. My goal was to help create an environment where that would set you up to be able to work as quickly as possible and create the best possible video that people would actually want to watch. In part two here, I'm going to give you some concrete recording and editing tips to help you make screencasts people will want to watch. None of the advice in this section will be specific to any tools, and like the last part, I think it'll be of interest uh, to people who only consume and don't create tutorials. At least I hope so. Now, the final part of this mini-series will be next week, and it'll be more specific on how I do things in ScreenFlow with as much generic explanation as I can provide in case you use other tools. Before getting stuck into this, I do want to do another hat tip to Don McAllister and J.F. Brissett for the tricks they've taught me over the years, many of which are included in this article. One of the most annoying things I see in video tutorials is the cursor jumping around on screen while the instructor is explaining something. Now, I know it's tempting to move the cursor around because you get used to doing it when it does have value, but you have to learn to let go. After you select a menu or point at something you want to explain, let go of the mouse or trackpad. Seriously, let go of it. Sit on your hand if you have to, just let go. Now you gain a lot of freedom when you let go of the mouse or trackpad. You can make as many mistakes as you want in talking and edits will be super easy because the cursor was staying still. Not only is it distracting to have the mouse circling a menu item or just jerking around for no apparent reason, if you say something incorrectly and have to re-record, you'll have no idea where the cursor was when you made the mistake. You'll have to deal with the user seeing the cursor suddenly leap across the screen at an audio a cut point. If you do end up with a cut where the cursor is going to jump, which does invariably happen, in ScreenFlow there's a cool trick that I learned from JF. Recordings of the screen hold certain visual items on separate layers, and the cursor is alone on one of those layers. ScreenFlow has an action to actually hide the cursor layer. You can add this action as a gradual effect, which lets you have the cursor gently disappear from the end of one cut and appear gradually at the beginning of the next clip. The viewer will never notice this act of trickery. There's a lot of trickery in here. So if there's an unavoidable jump, see if your screencasting tool supports fading the cursor out and back in. Now I go back and forth on whether this next tip is good advice or not, so think about whether this would work well for you or not. 
I like to record screencasts in very short segments, usually no more than two to three minutes. Now, there's kind of pros and cons to this. The main benefit is that if you bork something up, you can re-record before the tool that you're demonstrating changes in some way. Let's say you're teaching an audio editing tool, and you do a bunch of edits to your sample audio while capturing the screen. It may be very difficult to get back to where you started without re-recording that entire clip. Now, as, as soon as I've recorded a clip, I review and I edit the clip. I do it right then for the same reason that it's short. If I miss something while recording, I can fix it right away before the tool changes. Now, the downside is that more cuts means more opportunities for that darn cursor to jump around. I've gotten pretty good at looking at the recorded video to kind of triangulate the location of the cursor relative to something on screen and then placing my, perter, my cursor pretty close to the same spot. So it's not too obvious. Now, ideally, I'd get smarter and purposely end recording with my cursor in an easy to replicate place. But that smartness hasn't materialized just yet, but ever hopeful, right? Now, no matter what software you're using to record your screencasting masterpiece, it will have a countdown timer before it starts to record. If you're really looking to be more efficient, find the preference where you can shorten that time by a lot. In ScreenFlow, I think it starts at five seconds and I turned it down to two seconds. Now, it sounds like I need to loosen up my schedule if that three seconds is a big deal, but this adds up over time. Think about it, if you record like 50 clips to make a half hour tutorial, that would be seven and a half minutes you'd save. I've done 75 videos for Screencast Online. That adds up to over nine hours of my life I've saved. Plus, I just hate sitting there waiting for it to count down. And what you might want to do instead is after the countdown finishes, just wait a heartbeat or two before recording. If you do have a second or more of dead air at the beginning of a recording clip, it gives you the option to use the video for a transition from the previous clip. Maybe you didn't notice something had slightly moved or the thing you had highlighted changed. Now you've got cover to be able to make it less obvious by adding a transition. For the same reason, it's not a bad idea to leave dead air at the end for a future transition need. I don't think I've ever remembered to do that though. So let me know if, if you think of a trick to remember. I finish and I go, stop right away. It's like, oh, I forgot to leave a, a second there at the end. Now, if you're using a non-destructive editor like ScreenFlow or Screenium, you can chop off these dead air pieces and bring them back by simply dragging either end of the video. There's pretty much no penalty to leaving yourself this little safety net. I can't believe I'm not, I'm going to admit this next one. But I have to thank my husband, Steve, for this next tip. I suggest that you have someone you trust watch some of your tutorials and tell you what words or phrases you overuse. Steve often watches my tutorials before I deliver them to Screencast Online, kind of to do a recheck to look for the bigger mistakes. Early on in my screencasting career, he pointed out that in a single 40-minute video, I said, I'll go ahead and, about 18 times. He said, why didn't you just say I'll? What are all those extra words for? I'll go ahead and do this. I'll go ahead and do that. I'll go ahead and do this. Anyway, it was very hard to stop saying I'll go ahead and, but once he mentioned it, I could not unhear it. After a while, I did beat it out of myself, and I feel like my tutorials are better for it. Then I started noticing how often I would start a sentence with so. I don't know why I do it. I go so. So it gets really old. Once you hear it, man, it sounds terrible. Now, the good news is I haven't, I, the bad news is I haven't gotten, made myself stop saying it, but luckily it's always followed by a pause. So I can usually edit it out when I catch one. I'm a work in progress like everyone else. 
Now, I talked in part one about setting the screen resolution low and making your backgrounds as non-distracting as possible. There's one more very tough part of a recording on a computer, and that's how to hold the window still. Now, if you can record your entire screencast in one go, more power to you. But it takes me close to a week to record a 30 to 40 minute video tutorial, and things are bound to move around. During that week, I'll remove a connection of my laptop from my dock to tote my laptop around the house. I'll flip back to my main user account, and at the very least, the app I was recording will have changed displays. One of the most distracting things you can do in a screencast is to have the windows jumping location on screen, even just a little bit. In fact, sometimes just a little bit of a jump is even more annoying. So you need a solution to this. I don't know how to do it on Windows, but on the Mac, there's an app called Moom for many tricks, which might be able to help. Moom has, well, many tricks, but one is that you can tell it to memorize the positions of windows on screen. It's beyond the scope of this discussion to give you a full tutorial on how to set up Moom, but it's pretty easy. When you're choosing the window size for Moom to memorize, consider sizing your windows to leave space at the bottom for closed captioning. Even if you won't be adding your own closed captions yourself, if you'll be uploading it to YouTube, it can add them for you. So it's a good idea to make sure no useful screen information will end up under the text. Even with Moom to memorize the main location of your app's windows, invariably there will be some pop-up window that insists on coming up in an unpredictable way. If movement, movement between clips is unavoidable, then you'll need to make a transition to make the cut. Now, I know jump cuts are all the rage on the YouTubes with the kids these days, but that only works when it's a video of like a human in real life. With a tutorial of a computer screen, it's just annoying. I'm sure you've seen PowerPoint presentations where people put in transitions where the whole screen turns to sparkles or spirals like in a bad acid trip. Please don't use those. Even if they're in your tool, don't use them. Please pick something more professional. The next worst thing to a swirling acid trip transition is if every single transition is different. Pick something relatively simple and just stick with it. You may want to use two different transitions, one to help when things move on screen as we've discussed, and a different transition to signify a big change to what you're talking about. For example, if I'm switching from an iPad view to a Mac view in the same screencast, I'll use a different transition to let people know I'm doing something major that's different here. Now, the final thing I want to bring up is whether or not to show a picture-in-picture -picture talking head in your tutorials. I am of the strong opinion that you should not. I'm about as narcissistic as they come, and while I really think that everyone should know what I look like and admire me, even I know that seeing my face covering part of the video tutorial will add zero value, and it'll only distract from the tutorial. If you simply cannot deny your desire to be in front of the camera, then do an introduction where it's just you telling the viewers what you're going to teach them. If you want to get fancy, some tools like ScreenFlow will let you have your video at an angle while showing virtual slides, and that can look kind of slick. But you know what? During the tutorial, I would implore you to let the content be the star. I hope these editing tricks give you something to think about, and next time we'll get a lot more specific with some very detailed editing tricks. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchot. lovely to see you again this weekend, Bart. Indeed it is. It's weird that it wasn't yesterday. Anyway, it's wibbly wobbly timey wimey. The listeners have no idea. But especially because the uh, the show we recorded Friday isn't out yet. So they really have no idea. Yeah. <laughs>
and they probably don't care. So we should probably kick into feedback and follow-ups, right? Right. Um, there was very little news this week, so I, I have padded out the little bit we have. So if you feel like asking questions, good week to do that. All right. Sounds good. Okay. So our first is a bit of follow-up from a while back, 2019. We would have talked about a company called First American Financial losing the sensitive financial data on more than 800 Americans. 800? That doesn't sound right. I mean, there's a number missing there somewhere. Maybe 800,000? I'm, I'm thinking I'm out by three orders of magnitude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, who, basically, this company processes something to do with figuring out whether or not you're entitled to a mortgage. It's to do with land deeds. And okay, hang on. It was, uh, according to the article you sent, um, uh, they lost sensitive financial data to uh, uh, 800 million documents. 800 million? I was out by six orders of my But it was documents, not people. Okay. And a mortgage application, I know from experience, has more than one document. Oh boy, does it have more than one document. Um, it doesn't have a thousand documents, though. So there's somewhere between 800,000 and 8 million people. Yeesh. Okay, so backing up. So First American Financial lost 800 million documents on people buying or so- selling a house. Yeah, um, we now know from the investigation that they were basically very, very sloppy in their internal procedures. So uh, it's all been settled. They're paying $500,000. And it all goes away. Is that a big number or a little number? It's a tiny number for, for a massive corporation that does a quarter of this market for the whole of the United States. Wow. I've actually never heard of these people. Yeah, they sit behind the scenes. So they look mm. after, when you try to mortgage a house, there's a land registry to tell whether or not someone else owns the property or someone else has a lien or... Oh, okay. So okay. Th- these guys are responsible for updating and checking that register when you do a mortgage. Okay, so um, to put this in context here in the Krebs on Security article that Bart links to, they just paid $500,000. Their earnings in one year was $7.1 billion. Billion. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that that is a paltry amount of money. Yeah. Brian Krebs's headline was not friendly. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So, yeah, sorry. Just, just uh, that was a follow up from when we talked about back then. In uh, much happier news, we talked last time about Apple's private relay, and I linked to a video from the Apple Developer Conference, which I thought was very good, but it's, you know, it's fairly high end because Apple's target audience was developers. Rene Ritchie did a video targeted at regular folk, uh, which is also very good. So, link in show notes. Oh, cool. Uh, actually, in Rene being Rene, the same content is available in textual form, video form, and audio form on his podcast. So, can- Oh, I did not know that, actually. I thought it was only video. No, it's great. that he- So he- those videos he does on YouTube are matched by blog posts on iMore and also audio only on his podcast. So those of us who don't like YouTube uh. can listen while they cycle and others can read. Okay. Uh, well, I'm actually really glad you told me that because I really like uh, Rene Ritchie when he's off the cuff explaining things. Uh, his his videos are too produced for me. They're too um, theatrical, if you will, the way <laughs> he he, uh, he does it. So I would probably scan, you know, read his uh, his material or or listen to it in a podcast form. That's nice. I yeah, I listen know. to him on a cycle, and they obviously sound scripted, but I don't see that they're overproduced. Okay, cool. Did not know that. There we go. 
Okay, so we have two deep dives. They're fairly shallow, but hey, <laughs> we'll dive anyway. <laughs> Uh, so the first one I am calling a cautionary tale for all of us, which is the story about those remote wiped Western digital drives. Now, I initially tweeted something to say, oh, my God, this is really important. Set your hair on fire. Or I think what actually... People not, may not know what this is about. Right. So, I, yeah, I was getting there. So <laughs> We have a chicken and egg problem here. Okay. Yeah, so the... The way the media were reporting it when it crossed my RSS reader was Western Digital advise users to disconnect hard drives from the internet after drives wiped remotely. That sounds like OMG, this is a major catastrophe. Right. And it was from Western Digital. It wasn't like someone else saying to do it. Correct. Correct. And right. I mean, so all of those are true facts. Uh, sorry, Jill. Um, so all of those are true facts. But there's some missing context, which a lot of the reporting either didn't mention at all or didn't mention until the very last paragraph. These drives have been out of support since 2015. So? So You don't expect your hard drive to get... But you need to be kept up to date. But it's not a hard drive. It's an internet-connected NAS with a feature being that you can access the stuff remotely and it hasn't had a security update since 2015 because it was discontinued in 2014. Hmm... Okay. So, the also, the bug that's being exploited was published along with the proof of concept in 2018. So, my actual biggest surprise in hindsight is that it's taken three years for this to happen. Because the proof of concept has been public since 2018. So, when I read the, the headlines, and I, and I heard about this in, um, I think I saw it in our Slack before I saw your tweet about it, but all I saw was Western Digital My Book. Well, Western Digital My Book are just, they're just disk drives. Hmm. They're not NAS drives. They're just drives. You buy them and they say Western Digital My Book and you plug them into your computer over USB. Okay, so these are My Book Lives. Okay. Which apparently makes a huge difference because these are internet connected NAS devices. And their their job in life, when they had a life, was to publish your stuff to the, to, to to make yourself available on the internet. Okay, which is the source. So, of all, all the right, problems. that's not nearly as bad as I thought. I mean, it's bad, but at least you knew you had a thing that was connected to the internet, right? And so, to me, in hindsight, now that we know all the facts, this to me has just become a cautionary tale that if we choose to connect something to the internet on which we store something of value, then we've just taken on a responsibility to make sure that we either keep the thing up to date or discover that it is no longer up to dateable. Yeah, I wonder in in this particular space, if uh, my limited experience with the Western Digital My Book was it was one of those, don't worry your pretty little head about this, I'm going to do things for you kind of drive. Mm -hmm. So it would run, you know, it had backup software that they wrote, that sort of thing. You know, the first thing I did was erase it, of course, but I mean, the market is for, the the marketing of this is for people who don't want to worry to their pretty little heads and it'll do all these things for them. So how would someone know that they had a, a, a network attached storage device that wasn't getting updates that's sort of a everybody who's not here raise your hand problem it kind of is yeah which is to be honest it, because you are ta- like if you decide to manage your own internet connected storage you've now taken ownership of making it secure and that's not easy mm-hmm. but you've just outlined one scenario if they were particularly responsible the last software update they released would have put a giant big message saying this device is end of life please disconnect it from the internet but I don't think they yeah. did. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that is something they could have done. I don't think they did. And in 2015, you could argue that we lived in more innocent times. Right, right. Mm, mildly argue. That's given them a lot of benefit of the doubt there. Um, so you, it took three years for this to be ex- exploited. That's pretty, that is pretty astonishing. It is actually. So my, this kind of, so my thinking is, okay, bear in mind each time that we buy one of these devices, we are assuming responsibility for securing them. So if we're trusting them with something irrelevant, like they're just a scratch space, it's where I put files I might need while I'm on the road. Yeah, okay, that doesn't seem so bad unless they're in some way private and this is a security problem. But if they're important to you in some way, then you've just taken on a responsibility. So my thinking, actually before this happened, my thinking about a year ago was I'm fed up of being responsible. I I have more than enough to be doing in life. I don't want a responsibility. So my local NAS got replaced with the cloud. I'm just paying someone else to do it. Backblaze can hmm. make my stuff secure. Right, right. And so I think really my takeaway from this is if you if you are taking on responsibility, be aware that you are taking on responsibility. And if you'd rather not, consider going to the cloud. And I think you bring up something interesting with Backblaze. Um, I always thought about Backblaze as I have backed up my data to the cloud. That's mm. all I thought about it as until I actually heard Marco Arment doing an ad for Backblaze long after I'd been using Backblaze. He was doing an ad and he said, you know what? I've got cloud storage. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, as I'm walking the dog, I'm thinking, what does he mean? He says, I could just go to Backblaze and see my, all of my data. So I can get to anything that's on my disk drive. I can always get to from wherever I am. And I, and I, and I was like, Really? <laughs> Never thought about it that way because I'd gone in to say, okay, I want to retrieve a file or I, I, you know, I'd looked at and never had to experiment with luckily, you know, downloading all of my data because I'd had a bad drive. Right. But it's just there in a little web interface. Everything you have is already backed up in the cloud. And, right. and their job is to be on top of this stuff, like you say, and to keep it, to keep it up to date. Yeah. And I, I had just never thought about that. Made, that makes 60 bucks a year for one computer sound like a steal. Doesn't it? And they also sell Amazon-compatible storage buckets. So most of my stuff at Backblaze is actually in buckets. Because? Uh, because it's not the stuff on my computer. It's the backups of my server and things like that. Oh, okay. So big piles of data that you don't need to get too quickly. You don't need them to be real-time access or anything? Or why do you, what do you delineate goes there? Uh, wait, so de- okay, so the, the backup of my computer can only backup your computer. If you need a disk drive right. in the cloud, okay. you need to buy a disk drive in the cloud. And the protocol they publish those out on is uh, compatible with them. It's a protocol Amazon wrote for their EC2. Uh, they're, called, okay. they're called buckets, and they hold blobs, which sounds fancy, but a blob <laughs> is just a binary large object. It's a file. And you a, book a bucket is, of blobs. A bucket of blobs. It really is just a folder in the cloud, really. But it's called a bucket of blobs, which I thought you'd uh, like. Okay, that's... That's a funny term. Yeah, I, I, I've heard a lot of people, I know, on the Mac Geek app, they've been talking about things like Backblaze and and whether that's of value for, uh, you know, it, there there were companies like CrashPlan who would allow you to uh, even back up network attached storage within your house and everything. And everybody remembers those days and is mad that it's sixty dollars per computer. But notice also that that uh, they, those people could no longer afford to do that as a business. Right. So that isn't, you know, that's, boy, that was swell. Things were too cheap to survive. Yeah, which is not good, <laughs> right? Because all of those people ended up having to find a new provider that wasn't giving them an, un, a, a, an economically unviable price. 
Exactly. Now it is any network or any uh, direct attached storage is still uh, backed up. Yeah. So technically, you could get like one of the the Drobos that are uh, uh, USB dro- attached Drobos, <laughs> and they would and they would back that up. Thankfully, the percentage of people who do that is quite small, mm-hmm. and the percentage of people who just have a laptop with a few files is quite big. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for subsidizing us. Yeah, pretty much. That is exactly what's going on. The normies are subsidizing the nerds. Yeah, and you know when I was uh, when I was working with CrashPlan, well, I ended up in problems with CrashPlan that they could not fix for me, and they tried really hard. They were they were great. I had no complaints with them, um, except for their upload was really slow. But uh, when the guy was helping me try to figure out what was going on, he noticed that I had I was not backing up. Um, things like Dropbox and Google Drive. And he said, why aren't you backing those up? And I said, well, you know, they're, they're already in the, in the cloud. And he goes, yeah, but why not back them up? I went, okay, I guess so. He goes, doesn't hurt anything. You're paying for it. Why are you backing those up too? So, and, and that does get you into the what's a backup and what's a sync situation, you know, that's a little different. And, and Backblaze, to do another ad for them, uh, what is it, 30 days you've got backwards in time? Yes. So if you delete a file, it's still up there for 30 days? Or if you get ransomware to be Jesus, it's still up there mm. for 30 days. That's the reason I want a cloud with a memory, uh, is for ransomware. Okay. So it might back up right now with ransomware, but yesterday's is still there. Correct. And so yeah. one of the th- one of the reasons. So I'm backing my servers up to their blob, their buckets of blobs, but their buckets of blobs have a feature where you can take a snapshot. And so every week I snapshot my bucket of blobs, and then I delete the last one. So I have four buckets of blobs at all times. And so if my server gets ransomware, my server can obviously write the backup because otherwise my server can't back itself up. So then Mm -hmm. if my server gets ransomware and my server can write my backups, then my server could delete my backups. Correct. But the key on the server only has permission to write files. It doesn't have permission to control snapshots. So by taking Ah. a weekly snapshot, I I have a copy that the server is powerless over. So effectively, the server has a write-only backup. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like it. A snapshot of a bucket of blobs. Snapshot of a bucket of blobs. And, and as I say, OneDrive, Dropbox, Google Drive, they all have uh, ransomware protection on them these days, or I certainly oh. think they do. You need to double check the feature, but I'm almost certain they do. Uh, and so that is another reason to consider going cloudy, because if you can write to your NAS, then ransomware on your computer can write to your NAS. So if you're relying on your NAS to protect you from having, you know, to get a backup in case of disaster, which is probably ransomware these days, then if you can write to it and destroy everything, so can the ransomware. So that's another reason to go cloudy. But anyway, the, the bottom line is, you know, be careful what you take ownership of and clouds are cool. So consider going cloudy. <laughs> you know, anyway. That's a good way to wrap okay, it up. So, all right, our what's second our second deep dive, dive? Is thankfully one where there's no need for setting hair on fire, uh, but it's one of those places where, ooh, Alison will find this fun. So I hope I was right. So <laughs> there is a bug in iOS Wi-Fi that is making the rounds. The takeaway for our listeners, regardless of whether you want to get geeky or not, do not connect your iOS device to a network with a funny percent sign in the name. If... <laughs> Any funny well, specifically, percent sign? it should not contain anywhere in the SSID or the network name percent p percent s percent s percent s percent s percent n. 
Because okay. if it does... Darn, I was going to do that, Bart. Well, Shoot. Believe it or not, there's no social engineering out there telling people that if they rename their network to that, they'll get faster internet. So I don't know if anyone's falling for it, but the, the intention is to try to trick people into changing their own Wi-Fi to that, and then all of their iOS devices will fall over in a heap. Um, if this happens, it corrupts the network stack in iOS so that you have to do... Uh, when you go to factory restore, thankfully, they've broken it into pieces, so you can either lose your whole iPhone or you can restore network settings. And thankfully, all you have to do in this case is restore network settings. But that doesn't mean it forgets every single Wi-Fi network you've added it to, which in pre-pandemic times would have been a gigantic pain in the backside. I guess in pandemic times, that means home. <laughs> doesn't it come back with iCloud Keychain? It or does it? Co- well, see, that's potentially an issue because if, if this network has been added to Keychain and this network comes straight back, then you may end up straight back in trouble. Yeah, yeah, good point. It's not that big of a deal to reset network that is, settings. That is, well, okay. I mean, it's really not Either that way, bad. Don't <laughs> do don't it think. anyway. Don't, don't connect to%p%s%s%s%s%n. But it does leave you wondering, well, hang on a sec. Why would connecting to an SSID with that funny lot of symbols, why would that matter? Well, myself and many, 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 many other people recognize that pattern immediately. So if you've been coding since a long time ago, one of the languages you've probably been forced to endure is the C programming language. And one of its most venerable functions is the printf function, which prints a format string. And so in JavaScript, we have a modern language, right? So if you want to print some variables in a string, you do backtick, type some text, percent, or not percent, dollar sign, open curly bracket, some variable you want, close curly bracket. I mean, it's all this nice modern template string stuff. But that's... You're saying just printing to the screen. You're not talking about printing physical Ooh, paper. To, to, a, saying, to a screen, some... to, the str- to a string, to assemble a string for use in some way. Okay. Uh, you use a format string. So in JavaScript, we do it with the backticks and we can, have, we can include our variable names inside our strings. Well, the old way to do that was that you would put placeholders into your string and you would say that what the placeholder was for and then you'd pass extra arguments, one for each placeholder, after the string. So the printf function would take a string as the first argument and then whatever amount of placeholders you need as second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth arguments. So if you... So I have a sample okay. in, in the show notes. So we make a variable called name that contains the string Bart, and we make a variable called fav underscore num that contains the integer 42. And if we wanted to print those to the screen in C, we would say printf, and then we would pass the string percent s is favorite number is percent d. And then the second argument would be the value for the percent s, which is name. And the third argument would be the value for the percent d, which is fav num. And that will... In- and all of that would output Bart's favorite number bing, is bing, bing. 42. So the percent symbols okay. are your placeholders, and then they're supposed to be passed variable names right. as the values to go into the placeholders. So it turns okay. out that... Okay, so if you have a string that contains percentage signs, you absolutely positively should not pass it to printf without sanitizing the input, right? If the variable's value is in the control of not the app then it should be sanitized. And the way you sanitize this is that you replace all percent signs with percent percent. Because percent percent... I, I don't know what you mean by sanitize. I mean what I was saying. So to sanitize, it means to strip out those placeholders that aren't supposed to be there. 
which means replacing percent with percent percent, because percent percent is the escape character for percent. Okay, none of that made any sense to me, okay. but I'm sure that's no, true. No, let's back up then. So <laughs> there's a string that my app is going to run through the printf function, and that string is not under my control. I didn't create the string. The string came from outside. I should not okay. pass that string straight to, pr to printf because it could be full of percent signs. So you're saying get the percents out of the thing that's coming in just to make sure it doesn't right. get confused. Exactly. That's exactly what I mean by sanitize. Okay, so if the character name came in from outside and the character name was uh, percent right. Bart, you would want to get that percent right. out of there. So it turns okay. out that as part okay. of their logging code, Apple were using the Who's SSID in a string oh. that they were running through printf. The SSID can contain percentage signs because that's what we just said. If you connect to an SSID called percent %p, percent %s, percent %s, percent %s, Right. Well, Apple are running that string unsanitized through a call to printf. So, why does it go to Apple, printf? In Apple's code, they are running the SSID through a printf statement as part of their logging code. They should have sanitized the SSID. Oh, okay. They forgot to sanitize the input. Okay. So, when it goes to write the log file, there are extra placeholders. And there are no extra values because Apple have no idea that there's extra placeholders because Apple didn't put them there. You did by naming your SSID. So all of those percents okay. are now getting null, null, null. Right? So what does percent %s percent... What percent %p says I should have a pointer. Percent %s says I should have a string. And so there's five of those which tells me that after the SSID, there's five, there's, four, there, there's five more placeholders Apple are passing values for. And then the last one is the kick in the teeth, percent %n. Percent %n is the placeholder for insert nothing, but stick into the variable the number of characters printed so far. It's a reverse one. It doesn't take input, it takes output. And okay. it's null because there are now too many placeholders. It is trying to write output to null. It is a null pointer exception. Okay. I don't know what a null pointer exception is. Right. Try write value to nothing. Computer goes, well, that's nonsense. Crash. Okay. How do I write a number of characters that I have printed so far to nothing, to the variable nothing? It's nonsense. It's a non... It's a, what, what do you mean? Put this letter in the not post box. What? <laughs> Crash. Okay. So, now, I heard that the, the uh, researcher that discovered this actually had a habit of... He was doing this on purpose, that he was putting in these printf commands as a way to send something funny to people who had stupid SSIDs or something? What what was the story behind it? How did he figure that it out? I actually don't know. You're, you, you, you've picked up a, a wonderful subtlety that I hadn't been aware of yet. Uh, that hasn't crossed my radar yet in the three stories I read. Um, but okay. it's, security researchers have a habit of trying common things, right? So the fact that, percent, that C <laughs> code is everywhere, throwing random percent S's into things is often fun because it will trip up bad code. And... 
obviously this person had something funny happen with an SSID and then kept digging. That's usually how, you know, a normal person yeah. goes, oh, that was weird. A security researcher goes, that was weird. Ooh, why? <laughs> and oftentimes they get a eureka moment. Now, in this case, the reason we're not saying our hair on fire, because this is a real bug and we are causing the network stack to crash. But because the SSID is so small in length, it's not a long enough input to use it for code injection because you have no room to put the code you need to inject because the SSID is too small. So the security researcher thinks that oh, okay. although it's an inconvenience, it's probably fine. But Apple should still patch. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so there's our... Well, that's a fun one. So no danger, no big deal. Exactly. It's and now you though. know that when you see these percent S's around the place, someone is writing some C code somewhere to try take input into a string. Yeah. Oh. Right, okay. so action alerts. Apple have released iOS 12.5.4, and you're going, 12? Doesn't that sound like the last version of iOS? Yeah, they've done it again. They have provided security updates to legacy devices. Thank you, Apple. In this case, oh, yeah, so them. there are, act there wow. are in-the-wild exploits against iPhone 5Ss, iPhone 6 Anythings, iPad Airs, iPad Mini 2s and 3s, and 6-gen iPod Touches, and they now all have a security update they should apply ASAP. That's that's amazing. The 5S. Yeah. How far back is that? That's got to be seven years, maybe? It's a long time. Yeah, because we're on the right. 12. And we did skip. And then there's the S years. It might be more than yeah. that. Wow. There was no nine. But yeah, there's still been a lot of iPhones. So yeah, that's, that's kind of impressive. Uh, then we're on to worthy warnings. So... Website Planet, those security researchers deserve an award. They have 100% of the stories in this segment. There are only two stories, okay. but still, they got 100% of them. <laughs> so the first thing they found was a database of CVS customer records that was unsecured online. They reported it responsibly to CVS, who popped the password on it, so it's no longer publicly available. Thankfully, it didn't contain payment card details, but what it did contain was contact information for customers, along with the details of their interactions with CVS. And my show notes say CSV, because I've been programming for too I long. I see it. I've already <laughs> fixed it. <laughs> um, so... For anybody outside of the U.S., this, this is our biggest... Uh, I think it's one of the biggest uh, drugstores. That's what I thought. Okay, good. I, pharmacies... I, I, yeah, that part, that part of your culture has leaked out. I was pretty sure it was a giant big chain of drugstores. So because yeah. they have your contact information and stuff like recent transactions and customer numbers, they could craft a very convincing phishing email to you and they'd know where to send it. So just be a little bit suspicious of anything from CVS <clears throat> for you to do something. Just, you know, be on the lookout. Yikes. If you... Back, backing up to the iPhone 5S was 2013. So it's eight years back. Okay, hats off to Apple. That is... Yeah, everybody keep that in your back pocket when somebody tries to tell you that uh, they uh, Android does so get updates. <laughs> Do you go back eight years? That is a... Yeah, I, be, I wonder what the equivalent Android... Uh, the equivalent um, Galaxy would have been back then and how riddled with security holes that is. <laughs> that would be a fun experiment. Yeah. Whether or not any of them would still boot even would be an interesting experiment also. Uh, I don't think anyone else quite has Apple's build quality. Uh, mm. The other website that uh, web, uh, sorry, the other database that Website Planet found, they seem to have a knack for sniffing out unprotected databases. They found a database of DreamHost's DreamPress service. 
which contained three years' worth of logs, which is 814 million records. They include admin login URLs for the WordPress instances, admin usernames, the email addresses of the admins, and other account information, but not the password. But that's basically everything you need in order to send a very convincing phishing attack to the person, because you know their email address, their username, and the URL you're interested in. But they don't need to talk to you at all. They've got your admin login. URL. URL. No, no, that's... The... And your username... Oh, okay. The, okay. So the URL, the username, their email address, but not, not the, the password, password have to fish for that off you. But, you know, the old, the old saying, what's okay. the easiest way to get someone's password? Ask them. Ask them. <laughs> and you have <laughs> everything you need to ask them. Um... So yeah, the two write-ups on Website Planner yeah. are actually quite good because they do something I don't see on every... I don't often link straight to the security researcher. I usually link to someone reporting on because the someone reporting on has translated from security speak to English. But these guys' write-ups are really, really good and they actually have like in the bullet points at the bottom things like, and the reason this is dangerous is because it exposes you to phishing attacks. So I, I kind of mm. like these. So yeah, wow. I thought they were good. So anyway, I link straight to them since they did the hard work. So if you are a CVS customer, don't believe your email uh, if it pretends to be from CVS. And if you are a DreamPress customer from DreamHost, be equally suspicious of anyone looking for admin passwords. Notable news then. Um, Facebook and the Michigan State University have published a very interesting journal paper. They have created an algorithm that takes as input a deepfake photo and can reverse engineer the deepfake algorithm used to create the photo, which is basically a really, really good tool for sniffing out deepfakes. Photographic deepfakes. So, hmm. Does that suggest that there's a finite countable number of algorithms out there that create these and that's how come they can back that's into it? That's not my reading of the abstract of the paper, but to say I'm out of my depth is the understatement of the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if, I mean, if it can figure out an algorithm they talk about that that's different than They're talking the, about the parameterization and stuff like that. So they seem to be figuring out the variables that go into some sort of algorithm. So they seem to be able to reverse engineer the parameters of something. Huh. The key takeaway is that, that is the fight against deepfakes, yeah. it's a chicken, it's a, sorry, it's a cat and mouse, not a chicken and egg, it's a cat and mouse, this one. Got to get my cliche <laughs> right. And uh, I, assuming the cat is the good guy, the, the cat just got, it appears to have gotten a nice new tool in their tool belt. I'm sure someone will find a way to obfuscate this. Yeah. But, you know, it's still, it's, it, it is a very interesting piece of research. Holding that, uh, holding that finger in the dike is right, a good thing. Right, and Facebook. <laughs> to throw Facebook, another question. Yeah, yes, well, we're at it. Facebook is exactly the kind of people who need to be doing this because Facebook is exactly the kind of platform where the convincing deep fake of an important world leader doing something terrible could cause real problems. So I like the fact that Facebook are involved and that Facebook are engaged with a university and that they're cooperating to do something good for planet Earth. So that's like, Good. <laughs> Definitely. That, that's pretty yeah, interesting. Like probably it. also in the good column. Brave are an interesting company. They're trying to build a business out of privacy-focused internet. 
So they have a browser and they have a VPN and they have now taken the search engine they've been working on for some time into public beta. So right now, at the moment, everyone on planet Earth can use it for free. Most impressively, they have built their own index of the web. They are not, re- they are not just re- reusing other people's indexes. They've actually built their own. And I've done a bit of testing with it. It seems good. It actually seems to know things. Yeah, we t- we talked about this on the Daily Tech News show, and I'm um, there, so there's two things you can go to search.brave.com yes. and just use that as as the search engine. Um, they are in some cases using other uh, other companies They've, um, search results, but they'll tell you they'll show you. Yeah, they when call they it fallback, and they will tell you that they're falling back to Google or falling back to Bing or whatever. And they give you a button yeah. as well. So they basically um, say at the bottom, how did we do? And would you like to fall back? Oh, that's kind of nice. So, yeah, I mean. Because that way, if you, um, if you, if you don't get the results you need, then you've got some, you can get back without having to leave exactly, Brave. Exactly, which means that the, there's not a, it's not like, oh, if I use this search engine, I'm just going to end up back on Google. Why don't I just start on Google? No, they make it so frictionless to fall back that you actually don't feel like it's a chore to try them first. It's also the nice, they present their results in a nice, clear way. I, I was rather impressed. Now, it's a public beta, which means it's free at the moment. I, there are also no ads on it at the moment. And that just gives a niggle in the back of my mind, going, you're a for-profit company. I don't see any way of monetizing, but then again, it's a beta, so maybe I'm thinking too far ahead. So so in uh, on Daily Tech News Show on the 22nd, we talked about this uh, relative to the CNET article, and according to that, it says there's no search ads, or and no ads during search, I'll get this yet, no ads on Brave Search during beta, but eventually there will be a paid ad-free version and a free ad-supported version with contextual, not personalized ads. And they're exploring using uh, BAT on search, and BAT is basic attention tokens. So the uh, explanation of that was, let me back up a little bit. And Brave uses a cryptocurrency that pays users for their attention if they agree to see some ads. Users can use these basic attention tokens or bats to support participating content creators. Excellent. I'm not sure I understood all that, but there was some stuff they're going to get good, revenue good. from. No, that, that's good. That, that puts the, my mind at rest, actually, because that was the one little niggle I had. And I, I clicked on their FAQ, and it was all about their great search algorithm and how hard they'd work to index the web. And I thought, well, that's wonderful. And as a nerd, I love this techie detail. But where's your money? Right, right. Um, so they they bought they bought a company called Clicks C L I Q Z. That was an anti tracking search browser company that developed a technology called Tailcat that delivered search results without logging user activity. So that's how they can give you contextual and yet not personalized ads. I mean, I've always said, right? If I'm searching for a telescope, you can rest assured I'm an astronomer. So you can advertise at me based on what I'm searching, not who who. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Great. Not, oh, I see you in front of this yeah, shop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is, okay, th- th- that now takes away my niggle. So I am now completely delighted that there is a competitor in this market who who seems to be doing A, good work, and B, in a way that I approve of. So yay, good on you, Brave. 
my my brief time with it. I, I wish I could set it as one of the as my default search engine on uh, iOS and macOS. It's not in the list yet, but I'd love to I see guess it until in there. I a public beta, they probably won't do that, and they probably wouldn't be happy if Apple sent them right. five billion users. Right. Anyway, right. No, that's good. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, also in the good news column, Google have updated their Google Authenticator app so you can hide your two-factor codes behind Face ID and Touch ID. Good. Yeah, a bit more security around your security. And uh, for people in the US, perhaps like a certain podcaster who I'm talking to right now who have Google Fi, apparently you're getting a free VPN service on your iPhone now. Uh, Really? It just comes comes with the mail, as it were. It just comes as part of the service now. That's interesting. There you go. Not just free, not just, sorry, it's not free internet. You're paying for the internet. It's a free VPN. So yeah, anyway, that's, uh, yeah, that's yeah, and good. then the only other, yeah, not a free VPN, that's important, no, cause you're paying. not free, because <laughs> you're paying for the service, <laughs> yes. yeah. Included VPN, how's that? Because yeah, free VPN is always one of those things that sets off every alarm bell possible. You had a fantastic interview with, oh, what are they, are not called Cloak anymore, they've re- renamed themselves. Oh, uh, encrypt.me. Good name. <laughs> sort of. I thought, yeah, I thought Cloak I like was Cloak. better. But. I really did like Cloak, <laughs> I know. But anyway, you, you interviewed Don Chitchat across the pond, and he explained in great detail why a free VPN is a catastrophically terrible idea. Yeah, and he, I've always thought back to the other thing he told us about was, he says, you know how it's really easy to find an article on top 10 VPNs? He says those are paid, ad- those are paid yeah. ads. Yeah, and... Whenever you see one of those collections, he says, we've been approached. Do we want to pay to be part of those lists? And the reason you'll never see Encrypt Me on there is we're not going to pay to, to be on a list. So many slime balls on the internet. Big sad. Yeah. The only other thing that I had is under interesting insights, uh, Motherboard have gotten their hands on the San Diego PD's user manual for their gray key iPhone cracker. Ooh. They didn't publish the whole document, unfortunately. They just did a write-up about it. And I read it, I read the write-up, and it's interesting, but I didn't learn anything I didn't already know, which is why it's just down here as interesting insights. Hmm. Um, Depending on how much you do or don't know about the Grey Key, you will get more or less out of this article. It's interesting, but I was rather hoping for some juicy new detail I didn't know, but so far, I mean, for all I know, there's like another article that's about to, they're about to hit publish on this very second, so maybe there's more to come, but as of what I've read so far, it was interesting, it was well written, but I didn't learn anything new. Oh, shoot. But don't worry, I have some palate cleansers where we definitely, definitely learn stuff. Um, I'm going to do these in reverse order, actually. So the first one is from a friend of mine and listener to the show, John. Uh, He sent me a message going, I think you'll like this. And it was to an episode of a podcast I had never heard of called A Conversation With dot dot dot. And in this case, it was a conversation with Trey Hunt, uh, Troy Hunt of um, Have I Been Pwned fame. Oh, it's a long episode. A very, very broad-ranging um, discussion from everything. You know, obviously, uh, password stuff, VPN stuff, doxing, parlor, have I been pwned? And also the thoughts of raising kids in the modern technological world and the differences between trying to raise a daughter in such a way that they're not told computers are for boys. And it, it was a very, very fascinating conversation. Uh, I didn't know it, but huh. Troy's Australian. The interviewer also appeared to be Australian. 
So um, they speak like two Australians speaking to each other, which to me as an Irish person is perfectly fine, but it contains words that you would describe as not Boy Scout safe. It's not sweary. It's just that is the vocabulary of two Australians talking to each other. You know, that four letter word often just means very. <laughs> so okay. basically, okay. listen to it with headphones on if you're around kids, because it has words that are you know you don't want them saying in school. Uh, but it's not obscene or anything. <laughs> it's really fun conversation, um, and it's actually he seems like a really nice guy. <laughs> it's, it's it's a fun conversation. Oh, cool! Oh, that'd be fun to get to hear him. Yeah, definitely. So there we go. Uh, and then. Going back out of order, then one everyone can listen to. Um, Neelai Patel, sorry, yeah, Neelai Patel does a great podcast um, called Decoder, where he interviews important people in the tech world. And Neelai is a very intelligent person, and he asks amazingly good questions, which already is fantastic, and I love his podcast for that reason. But he does something else I find amazingly good. He prepends in front of the interview, after the fact, a an explanation of the big picture version of the conversation. I was interested in this, so I asked him about that. He went into this. He uses these acronyms. This is what they mean. He says this word. This is jargon for this. And because you have the context going in, you're not thrown by these acronyms and things. You know exactly what's coming. You know exactly the context. And so you get 10 times more out of the conversation because you already know the difficult words from beforehand. I saw him do that on, um, and I'm going to screw this up, which would make him crazy, but I listened to it a long time ago. He was interviewing one of the people, either Beyond Meat or oh, yes. there's the, the, the two fake meat ones. And he was, and, and he, so the, the person he's interviewing has very strong opinions about the way they're doing it is right and the way the other company is doing it is wrong. But he explains up front how to listen to that. And in the context of the industry, why that's important and what you should what you should know going into hearing him defend the way yeah. they do it. And it, it was it, it, I know exactly what you're talking about, that pre-information that helps you frame the way you can hear this if, if you're not already educated in this thing yeah. that you're going to hear. So about. he got an interview with Satya Nadella, which is, which oh, is not an easy fantastic. thing to get. And he got the interview a day or two after the announcement about Windows 11. So it is a fascinating conversation about the way Satya Nadella thinks about the world. He is not Steve Ballmer. He is so many shades of not Steve Ballmer. <laughs> he is thinking about Microsoft, about Microsoft's place in the world, about where Windows fits into the ecosystem. He is thinking about these things oh so much differently to Microsoft of old. It's fascinating. And I liked what I heard. Oh, nice, nice. It, you know, it's been interesting listening to you over the years, your opinion of Microsoft Evolve. And it came in really handy where a woman wrote to, uh, I'm a member of a message group that's a, a user group that I never attend, but I participate in the message group. And uh, this woman said uh, that she's. it's going to look like she's going to have to start using Microsoft Teams. And she has so far avoided ever putting anything from Microsoft on her computer. And so, and what was she, what should she do? And I, and I wrote back and I said, first of all, I applaud you for doing that. I think that's wonderful. And you've stuck to your guns and that's fantastic. But to be honest, 
I don't think they're horrible anymore. And I and I said a lot of what we've talked about and said, you know, I think it's okay to let them in. And, and you know, especially teams. All I hear about is good things about teams. Yeah. So. yeah, so they really have changed. And look, the CEO has a big impact on a company. And if a CEO's thinking is out of whack with yours, you know, yes, they're on a giant big oil tanker and they can't turn it around in a day. But if they're CEO for a decade, it's turning. Yeah. And oh, yeah. so to hear yeah. Satya Nadella say all the things I wanted to hear and to see how Microsoft has been steering its ship for the last, what, he's, he's, he's running the show for a while now, right? Must be five years at least. Yeah. They, they are a company that I, I have, they have earned my, faith is too strong a word. They've earned my respect. How's that? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm pleased. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I like. I, people say, "But isn't it terrible to have to change your mind?" It's like, no. New facts, new mind. <laughs> What's your problem? <laughs> Wait, new yeah, facts. I'm not a politician. <laughs> I don't. It's not flip flopping. It's called being intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know whether this will count okay. as a palate cleanser, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. When you were talking about uh, security researchers, when they find something like this percent P or percent S thing, and uh, how some people would go, "That's interesting," and set it aside, but they'd go, "Ooh, that's really interesting." Um, we were supposed to go to Iceland on a cruise in 2020 uh, with the uh, scientist we were going to be going with was. Um, uh, Andrea Ghez, who is credited with, uh, well, she got a Nobel Prize for proving that we have a supermassive black hole at the center of our Sweet. galaxy. And um, I loved the the scientist that we, the, the astrophysicist we traveled with to Chile, and I didn't want to hear her because I already knew this other guy was amazing. And I was just kind of like, oh, well, all right, I don't know who this woman is. Well, we are still going to go on the trip. It's going to be next year. We got to see her uh, at a very small talk, maybe a dozen of us, in a Zoom call with her where she was explaining how she did what she did. And first of all, she is amazing. She is. I, by the time time she was done, I was pretty sure I could do astrophysics. Now I've got it. I know all this stuff. I'm. I understand it. That's how good she was. But she talked about the the fact that when they uh, they were able to peer into the center of the galaxy, they were able to find a star circling around this uh, supermassive black hole at a rate of one out of or I'm sorry, out of sixteen years. So a 16-year rotation through it. So inside of our lifetime, think how fast that thing is going if it's going around this supermassive black hole. And she said the best part, though, was they're looking at all this stuff, they're looking at all the data, and it doesn't match the theories at and all. she's delighted. It was awesome! <laughs> and she goes, oh, goody! She goes, I mean, kid in a candy shop for that me. That is what I love about, <laughs> about scientists, because... You know, you, you say things like, oh, this this proves the standard model. And everyone goes, oh, that must be terrible for you. And they're going, no, no, this is wonderful. The standard <laughs> model has been far too right for far too long. It's so boring when it's always right. Yeah, yeah. So we need it to be, uh, it, that's interesting. It's, ooh, that's interesting. That's the best thing you can hear exactly. a scientist say. Anyway, I don't know if that counted, but I thought it it, tailed, it uh, dovetailed into what you were saying about security uh, research. It my palate, so that's at least one. <laughs> When we got done listening to her, we discovered she's going to Antarctica in 2023. We signed up for that Antarctica. trip, too. Antarctica? Wow. Yeah. 
I and and I'll tell you, I've always wanted to have somebody send me a picture of the Nocellacast on a device in Antarctica because it's the only <laughs> continent no one's ever done that from. So I'm gonna just myself. have to go do it myself. I love it. Have you have you personally been on every one of the continents by now? No, no, we've never Africa. been. What's Af- Africa's its it own is, right. continent, You've definitely right? been in Asia, you've definitely been in Europe, you've definitely been the two Americas, you're on your way to the South Pole, so I do believe you just need to put a toe into Africa and then you're done. Yeah, I think so. Right, now silly castaways, do yeah. we have any in Africa? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, well, I think we should probably wind this up now. I managed to ask you enough questions to make it Excellent. chewy. Okay, well, remember, folks, until we speak again... Remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. When is the last time we've had a good dumb question? These dumb questions are supposed to be questions you have that you think everybody else probably already knows the answer, but you don't know the answer to it. I love those questions. Don't make them real hard questions. Make them easy enough for me to be able to answer. Anyway, you can send in your dumb questions, your Everything is Fiddly recordings, comments and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a patron of the Podfeet podcast? Where do you go? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to do a one-time donation to PayPal? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join the discussion with other Nocilla castaways? We have a lot of fun over on Facebook at podfeet.com slash Facebook and a lot of fun over at Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.